0: Well, hello, folks. And today uh, we're uh, we're interviewing uh, Vijay Sandy, He's the CEO of NMI. VJ, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. Uh,
0: you know, we always like to start out by giving our listeners some background on who on who we're talking to. So, would you mind uh, you know explaining? A little bit about your your career path and what led you to NMI?
1: Sure. I've spent about 20 years in the technology industry at the intersection of finance and software. Uh-huh. And uh uh, prior to joining NMI I spent uh five years at Visa at the corporate headquarters in San Francisco and okay. got to know quite a bit about payments over there
0: I bet uh right there on the uh, were you in in San Mateo is that where you were or was the, did had they moved by then
1: yeah that's a great question started in <laughs> downtown San Francisco moved right. to uh, Foster City San Mateo moved back to San Francisco okay so yeah. uh had a bit of the Bay Area and um and I uh, was head of corporate strategy at Visa initially. And okay. then I um, had a great opportunity to be general manager of Cybersource and Authorized Net. Oh, right. Um, two businesses we acquired. And uh, my last tour of duty at Visa was building out the uh, Global Innovation Center uh, for all Visa clients, merchants, acquirers, uh, issuers uh, at the global headquarters in uh, downtown San Francisco.
0: So you're definitely a, a Californian steeped in technology, I think we could say. Uh, which kind of is an interesting segue because you know, we've we've interviewed a lot of uh, agents and ISOs on these podcasts, and and it seems to me that MMI is is different in that you're not an ISO but a technology company that supports
1: ISOs. Is that correct? That's correct. Um, we have a really unique uh, value proposition, which is what why I got so excited about uh, the ability to um, to to be part of NMI and to eventually lead as CEO. Um, we provide enabling technology and the word enablement is core to our DNA. Um, we give enablement technology to an ISO so they can brand our tech stack, our gateway to make it look like it's theirs. And we Mm -hmm. sort of disappear in the background, but do all the, all the heavy lifting.
0: Maybe that this would be a good place. I know when I, um, when I, when I talked with you all, um, in prepping for this interview, uh, you know, talk about some of the company's milestones. Um, for example, I believe you, you did some pioneering work in the online and, the, and uh, mobile chip card enablement. Um, and then there was also your acquisition, I believe, of credit calls. So I was wondering if maybe you could speak to some of those milestones and, and how that sort of contributed to the overall corporate uh, corporate structure.
1: Sure. The the uh, one NMI that we have today is a combination of um, two companies, um, NMI, which was uh, founded in the early 2000s at the kind of dawn of internet e-commerce. Mm-hmm. Um, that really, uh, yeah, NMI pioneered the concept of a white label payment gateway, um, and then we uh, combined uh, with Credit Call from the UK, who were the pioneers in card present gateways and particularly pioneered uh, the first. Uh, card-present gateway for chip uh, EMV transactions in uh, various point-of-sale devices. And so the combination of the two gives us kind of the true, I uh, hate to use the word overused, but omni-channel enablement solution because uh, we took the leading uh, e-commerce uh, enablement supplier for ISOs with the leading uh, gateway for EMV chip transactions and all things card-present and put them together.
0: Well, but, you know, that's interesting because I, you're right. Omnichannel is a, is a widely used word <laughs> in this industry. Just a little bit. <laughs> Just a little bit. But, you know, obviously, you know, the the largest retailers, they have the financial and the technology clout to support this. The small and mid-sized businesses, though, I mean, they generally rely on their ISOs. Um, but what we often see is that the payment solutions that ISOs offer differ by channels. Which I think, which it would seem, can, can create some real chasms between the promise and the reality of omnichannel of an omnichannel experience, right? And and as I understand it, what M MN- NMI is seeking to do is to address this through sort of like a, what you call a unified token payment credentials. Is that correct? And could you maybe explain a little bit more about that?
1: Sure. And I apologize for the mouthful on all of these uh, <laughs> <laughs> Thank terms. Thank you. It does, because <laughs> <laughs> it's
0: not easy to, to roll off the tongue sometimes.
1: <laughs> it, it is. I, I sometimes feel the industry comes up with complex terms, and then uh, we, we want to show up to demystify them. So we'll try to do some of that at this podcast. Okay. Um, just maybe unpacking your first statement, uh, Patty, about the largest retailers, uh, having all these, you know, technology resources, sure, you know, large nationwide brands, um, they understand payments, they understand e-commerce, they have their own apps, they have their own website, they've been able to stitch together uh, omni-channel use cases such as buy online, return in store, um, or uh, you know, browse in store and have it shipped to your home. All of these omni-channel use cases. What happens in the mid segment, the kind of the SMB, small medium business? is they don't have um, the resource or the know-how um, of how to handle this omni-channel wave that has uh, mm-hmm. become just a normal part of, of our lives. Right. And uh, so that's um, that, that, that's really what, what we've gone out and done is we've said, look, we have a platform that ISOs and a channel um, can get to the SMBs and can offer this up and make uh, the, the small businesses competitive with the large nationwide chains. I, I sometimes coined coin a phrase – uh, revenge of the brick and mortar and revenge of the small business over the large VMOs. Uh
2: huh, uh huh. So, VJ, I have a, an interesting question about this. So, we're talking about Omnichannel. Um, can you talk a little bit? And, and I have some experience actually. My software company, we integrate on the back end with NMI and we absolutely love it. It's been great. And a lot of my consulting clients use your white labeled version. So, I'm a big fan. Uh, of NMI, but one thing we haven't dabbled into, and I haven't really seen implemented, is the hardware side of it. So, talk a little about that. You say omni-channel. I mean, are you saying you know there are Deja Vu terminals or Verifone or swipers? Or talk about some of that stuff. I mean, what what exactly do you offer, and what do you integrate with on the hardware side?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, the way that we uh, think about this, um, and I'll, I'll just throw this out there, and then get into your specifics around the question, which is. Any point of engagement, whether the consumer comes in through a website, um, through a uh, full-scale kind of countertop uh, point-of-sale device uh, or a mobile point-of-sale device that's uh, part of a a Bluetooth-tethered phone solution, or an unattended use case that could be a vending machine, a parking meter, um, any of those uh, kind of, you know, no, no attendant necessary. And we support all of those four buckets. So to get very specific within the retail channel, we have a couple of uh, Verifone devices that we support, a couple of Ingenico devices, a handheld by Mura. Um, and then um, for you know more more custom solutions, we have over sixty devices. So we're probably. Uh, the one vendor that can get you to just about any device and any type of use case when you talk point of sale or physical uh, card credentials being used to make a payment.
2: So, Vijay, one other thought on this, and just to kind of clarify for the agents listening who may not be as as aware of all the intricacies here. So, when we're talking about omni-channel, and correct me if I'm wrong, you know what we're talking about is you could you know through NMI, a merchant you know with one merchant ID number could potentially have, you know, a virtual terminal, a mobile swiper that they use at a trade show and a desktop uh, terminal, uh, you know, countertop terminal. And, and that would all be under one merchant ID number, all integrated into NMI. Is, is that correct?
1: That's correct. And the beauty of that is that um, we can tokenize the card credentials and therefore we can identify the consumer uh, back to um, the, you know, let's say last, last four digits or the fully tokenized and, and encrypted and protected right. uh, Visa or MasterCard number. And that's a huge advantage, by the way, to uh, to your earlier question, Patty, around these large companies, um, large nationwide retailers can create loyalty programs, and people are willing to create a profile. But SMBs have a tough time creating right. a profile, so here's a way of having an instant customer indicator without having to have any enrollment. Of course, opt-in and privacy have to be covered by the retailer, but technologically, sure. it's instant.
0: So so that actually makes me I mean you know because security is something we talk a lot about right right so if the payment information is being tokenized if the card data is being tokenized Does this then eliminate and/or diminish issues around PCI compliance?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, That's one of the biggest value adds that we can provide by taking that PCI. Right. Yeah, because yeah, I mean, your clients they don't want to be dealing with audits and um, you know potentially having hackers compromising their systems. But we take all of that security and put it under our platform, which has had ninety nine point nine percent uptime. Uh, which is certified by auditors that are part of Visa, MasterCard, American Express. So we take, take that burden off of um, your merchants or the ISO's merchants' clients.
2: Yeah, and I mean, that's such a huge thing, right? I mean, yeah. you know, I can say from, you know, from experience with our company, right. when I'm talking to our lead developer, when we were looking at, okay, we need to set up recurring payments for our software, you know, who do we want to use for that? It's like, well... You know, we don't want to become PCI. We, I mean, you know, we don't want to have to go through in, in scope and PCI. We want to be out of scope. So you use somebody like NMI, you guys have your vault that secures everything. We just get back our little tokenized number and everybody's happy, right? So I think that's a huge win for software developers.
1: Absolutely. And our philosophy is we make the information useless if somebody steals it. And that's the beauty right. of that token mm-hmm. is that if somebody grabs it, right. you know, we can't do anything with it.
0: Right, right. So what about in terms of leveraging the data um, to support other types of, of services, you know like you know better customer service, improved loyalty. How, how precisely do you apply the data? How does that work if you can enlighten us?
1: Yeah, so um, by get, having this what we call a unified token vault which essentially means that you know once you have this customer record or even we see the card number reappear, um, we don't we don't really care about where, where the card number came from because it's in the single NMI unified token vault. And the merchant has access to that data. Now, once you have access to that data, you can start to build what we call uh, propensity models, which is how do you get someone to make a purchase? Mm-hmm. Um, I'll give you a, a concrete example. You mentioned trade fairs or you know trade shows. Um, we had a client that uh, does a lot of these, um, you know, the, the rodeos and uh, community fairs. Right. Sure. And. Right. And and they're and they happen regularly, but they can sort of see and they go, hey, Patty, like I saw this card number before and then you used to come every quarter. And the last time I saw it was three quarters ago. So maybe I can flip you an offer and say, um, if you want to come back on a regular basis, we'll give you 10 percent off. if You buy four tickets and enable that kind of uh, targeting um, just just by looking at frequency. Uh, of the use of the payment credential, and again tying it back to the same person.
0: And does that frequency just go to the individual merchant, or do you does you know is there sort of like a spillover you know with other merchants that can access some of this data? That that
1: that, that is a great question. So um, because of the way our system is set up, we absolutely cannot share data from one merchant to okay. another. Okay, that's what I was um, thinking. Sure. And, yeah. It's completely segregated because otherwise, you know, we may have competitors of each other, right? Right, you know, yeah, Coffee shop A, coffee shop B, right? Yeah, um, yeah. That's so important. no, it cannot be shared under any circumstance. But within the merchant, of course, they have full access.
0: And 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 what what are you looking at in terms of the types of merchants? If there's one, are there particular verticals where this really works, or is it? A, does it pretty much cut across?
1: Yeah, you know what we're starting to see is. Um, People that used to think that, that, that they are just e-com- only e-commerce, and, and we, we have ISOs to say, you know, I've got a bunch of guys that sell stuff online, um, you know, they, 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 they sell a certain type of product and they're never going to go uh, to a physical point of sale device. Why, we don't need your unified token vault and we don't need omni-channel. Right. And then like, we'll tell them that we can do, and they'll call us up and they go, you know, our client said that they want to do a pop-up shop, um, you know, at a mall, and they're going to be taking payments uh, right. physically. Right. So we actually do neither. And, right. and uh, I'll give you another example. You know, we had people that uh, the doctors and the dentist offices and they said, well, you know, we have this portal and this is where you do your copay. And they said, actually, most of the people really want to pay with their card and a few want to pay with the copay. Right. Um, so, yeah, can you guys integrate this for recurring billing card on file? So when you ask about like which um, industries, it, we're just seeing it everywhere. And there's a little bit of like a backlash to only having stuff online. People right. actually do want to sure. have physical presence. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I can't say that it's only one type of merchant. I would say it's pretty well across the board. i would give you a last one, which is gym memberships. You know, we have a lot of companies that use our software for, for the gym membership, which has traditionally been a card on file that Make Your Profile. Right. But now they want to use the gym membership for vending machines as an actual customer of one of our ISOs um, so they can buy your Gatorades and, you know, towels yeah, and whatever sure. else you want. sure. And that needs to be the same card, and they want it from the same profile, and there's a discount, and the profile's connected, and you get a discount if you buy at the vending machine. So I think it's across the board.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's funny you say that. I literally, uh, what, four or five hours ago, I got my uh, my water at the uh, at the gym and said, put it on my account, and they put it on my account. And, you know, they wouldn't be able to do that if they didn't have an omni-channel solution like that. Because right. It wouldn't be tied into their POS system. Um, You know, how can they learn more about NMI? NMI?
0: Excuse me, I... <laughs> Uh, how can they learn more about you, folks, and how how they might potentially work with you?
1: Um, yeah, it, very easy. Uh, our website, which is just three letters, NMI.com um, has you know all kinds of information on there as well um, as you know uh, contact forms and phone numbers and what have you. We also do blogs, um, and uh, you know we appear at various industry fairs, so we're we're pretty easy to get a hold of. Um, just you know hit our hit our website or our Twitter account or uh, any of those different um, access points, and we'd love to talk to uh, to anyone. And, by the way, we're not into the hard sell, so if people are already processing with another uh, competitor of ours, we'll, we'll still tell you what we think where the industry is going, and um, we're, we're happy to educate because we feel we're part of a community here. So um, anytime, we'd love to hear from uh, partners out there. This is great.
0: Thank you. I really appreciate it. And- awesome. Um, I look forward to uh, chatting with you some more, okay?
1: Likewise, thanks so much for your time and I look forward to uh, catching up with you guys in the future.
0: Yeah, and uh, enjoy that sunshine out in San Francisco today.
1: I certainly will, thanks so much. Okay, take
0: care,
2: bye-bye. This is the Insider's Report with Patty Murphy brought to you by GreenSheet.com, a premier resource for the electronic payments industry. The GreenSheet has been on the beat since 1983. Always focused on boosting the feet on the street in our evolving sphere.
0: So I wanted to share some data this week that illustrates just how vibrant an industry merchant acquiring has become. But first, a little background. When I began writing for the Green Sheet 20 years ago, I was tasked with putting together the annual U.S. Bank Card Acquirer's Report. At the time, merchants were ringing up nearly a trillion dollars a year on MasterCard and Visa branded bank cards, primarily credit cards. Hmm. And just a handful of acquirers were processing more than a billion we're processing a billion or more in transactions per year.
2: Wow, really? Yeah.
0: Okay. It was actually eight to ten. That's crazy. Yeah, wow. yeah. Now today we have a billion dollars in transactions, you know, that doesn't doesn't even rank the top ten right listings, right? Yeah. And debit card payments rival credit cards in terms of overall transactions. Sure. In fact, both Visa and Mastercard report whopping increases in debit card payments over the past 10 years or more. Between t- 2004 and 2018, Visa debit transactions grew by a whopping 371%. Wow. While Mastercard debit payments were up 677%. Hmm. Now, at the same time, Visa card credit card transactions rose a, you know, an admirable 220%, <laughs> you know. Wow. Well, that MasterCards grew by a respectable 87%. Hmm. Further d- demonstrating growth in debit card uses, Visa, Visa reports that cardholders made 1.73 trillion payments using their Visa debit cards last year.
2: 1.73 trillion payments. Not volume, no. payments.
0: Dollars in payments. <coughs> oh, dollars. dollars. Okay, okay. I was to, okay so remember it. how I was saying 20 years <clears throat> ago, right. we did just under a trillion, a trillion in total?
2: in total? Now it's over $1.7 trillion just in Visa debit. Just in Visa debit. Wow. Signature debit. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, that, uh, which far outstrips the $1.1 trillion in Visa and MasterCard credit card payments um, in 2004. Sure. Okay. MasterCard debit um, payments were uh, $730 billion last year. Consumers made about uh, 831 billion in payments using Mastercard credit, and about one, just under two trillion in payments using Visa credit. Wow! I yeah. mean, that's a, when you think about it, 20 years. Numbers. We're talking like triple. Yeah. The now market. that's
2: that's like internationally. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah right. Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah. Got but it. still. Global. Right. But still. Yeah. That's a huge amount. Sure. Just as an aside, businesses rung up about $770 billion in Amex card transactions last year and $140 billion in Discover card payments.
2: Wow, only $140 billion Discover. Yeah. I Discover <laughs> is really, they need to be bought out by Visa or MasterCard. That's going to happen. It's funny. They probably would have already done it if they weren't so worried about the antitrust. Right. They're like, they want to have that one competitor. (laughs) And, you
0: know, we've talked about this in the past, too. You know, the thing about Discover that a lot of people forget is Discover was launched by Sears
2: yeah that's right back in the right, 80s right I forgot
0: about and it that was Sears you know we're going to try to break into into right. financial services they right. they got their they bought Dean Witter then they discovered you know launched discover yeah. and the next you know a few years later they had to divest everything right.
2: Sears hasn't exactly had the most uh, focused uh strategic uh you know plan not in, not in modern days no. at least now a
0: handful of uh, top acquirers still dominate the space uh, the straw hacker group which calls together an annual report Ranking the top 300 merchant acquirers, estimates that the top five players processed 4.3 trillion dollars in U.S. card spend last year. Mm. Here's a couple other, a few other additional data points from Strawhecker. Uh, Forty percent of the top ten acquirers charted 10 percent growth or more in card volume, transaction values, and/or merchants between 2017 and 2018. Mm. of the acquirers listed sell for First Data. Uh, And First Data, excluding its partnerships with banks and other processors, handled about $22 billion in transactions, $22 billion in transactions last year. Hmm. Chase Paymentech was the largest acquirer in 2018 in terms of volume at just over $22 billion. Wow.
1: Hmm.
0: And um, so just a little bit more than First Data. And uh, six, here's an interesting thing. I thought I would have thought this number would be higher. 61% of the top 300 acquirers offer cash advances or business loans. Yeah,
2: I would have thought it would. Well, probably the other 40% though have strategic partnerships. That's, that's kind of what I was you know wondering I mean? as well. You know I mean? They probably yeah. offer it through they other channels. Through other to be channels. honest, I'm actually a little surprised. I didn't realize Chase Payment Tech was bigger than First Data and or WorldPay. I thought WorldPay and First Data were both larger. WorldPay... Especially now with the um, FIS, FIS larger. is definitely larger. Larger. Okay, yeah. so, so I'm sorry. This is 2018. 18. So it was last Man, year. It's so hard to keep up with the mergers, isn't it? I like, know, isn't it? Great. Because
0: I I'm, when I was reading that, I was I was of the same thought. Yeah. It's like,
2: what about WorldPay? And then I was like, oh wait oh, a wait. minute, yeah, that, that wasn't happen. announced until after the first yeah. That's the right. Year, wow. So. Wow. Really? Chase Payment Tech. I know they did some big acquisitions. Yeah. So yeah. that's that's interesting.
0: And here's some other interest. Here's a little another interesting thing. I I just happened to. When I was putting this together the other day, I got a report across the 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 email on Chase's uh, first quarter report to shareholders. Yeah, the bank reported that card volume processed by payment tech grew at twelve point seven percent last year uh, during the first quarter. Excuse me. Wow. Right. Okay. Which was, albeit you know, it was down from its five year high uh, in which was. um, Tallied last quarter, so, well, mm-hmm. Q4, the last right, quarter of right. 2018, when they had 16.7% year-over-year growth.
2: Wow. That is, that's really phenomenal growth it numbers. Is. You know, the other thing, though, I have to point out, I mean, those numbers sound fantastic, but, you know, you to me, you know, you can't really talk about those numbers without also putting the context of balance sheet. Right. How did they get those numbers? You know what I mean? How much debt... Like what would be really interesting to how me? How much is, was acquisition? How much was selling? Right. Right. Well, to me, the uh, the the big question there is, you know, EBITDA and like what is their ROI? Or what's their what is their return on capital mm-hmm. now versus five years ago? Right. If they've been able to maintain or improve that number while growing at that rate, that is very, impressive. very impressive. I don't know. I don't. Have to, but you know, to me, these companies, you know, I mean, they just take on enormous debt. Uh, and or you know water down shares or whatever in right. order to make these massive acquisitions. Um, so it's very yeah. interesting though to see how it all plays out. And I mean, it, it does it you know if they're an individual agent is listening right now like why do I care about this? This stuff absolutely affects you. Oh yes. You don't realize that you're selling for an ISO that's selling for an ISO that's selling for an acquirer that just got acquired. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like oh it really does it does it does have impacts. It really does,
0: and you know that's one of the things that um, Jared Dryling um, who's um, with Straw mm-hmm. you know, he, he mentioned that the, you know this the, this ongoing spate of mergers and acquisitions is clearly going to potentially sh- you know will, will potentially shake up yeah the rankings you right. know right uh, and as we discussed you know Vantiv and WorldPay combined last year to form the new WorldPay which is now in the process of being acquired by FIS right and then First Data is in the process of being acquired by um, Fiserv.
2: Yeah, And both FIS and FISERV are huge processing companies right. with large books. Which, by the way, if there was anybody else like, good night, could they really not have just named themselves just a little bit more just differently? A little bit differently? <laughs> yeah. It's like FIS and FISERV. No, they're not the same company. Totally different.
0: One is capitalized. Right, all right. Three letters. The other, the other is not. not.
2: Yeah, that's the only difference.
0: Uh, that's anyway, funny. so here's what uh, just what uh, Dryling said. He said, uh, M&A activity in the p- payment processing space has shown no signs of slowing down. Right. Requires continue to purchase competitors and are complete, completing ISV acquisitions at an ever faster pace.
2: ISV is being indiv- individual yeah. or independent software, software vendors.
0: vendors. And that, you know, which we've discussed in the past, yeah. is a big is a big trend here.
2: So. Yeah, and I think a lot more it's it's interesting seeing um, I've seen actually a lot more interest. It seems like in the pure financial side, like the acquisitions are more geared at either ISVs or buying an an existing book. Right. Buying the sales organization has started to become a little bit less valuable. It's almost right. like a lot of the larger companies don't want the aggravation of the sales team. Yeah, yeah. Which is unfortunate. I think it's a it's an oversight. I think a lot of them have. Kind of, you know, as they've acquired and acquired and acquired, it's like they've, you know, become this conglomerate and nobody in the conglomerate really understands sales anymore as much. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden it's like, well, they don't know what to do with an acquisition that could be really, really valuable because they're doing a thousand deals a month. Right. But it's like, well, yeah, but how many accounts do you already have now? How many of those 1,000 deals are coming from ISVs or referral channels where it's just going to keep coming no matter what? Mm -hmm. Because they know that the sales team is going to fall apart after. I mean, how many deals have been done in the last few years? I won't name names, but I mean, so many where it was like these very respected big sales organizations. Yep. And then and all the salespeople, it's like the acquisition was done, and the next week everybody left. And the door opens. Yeah, and it's because these new companies come in, they have no respect for the sales partners in their role, um, and they just go in there and do jack up huge. They're like, why wouldn't we do a forty basis point price increase, right? Like they, and so they're just not sensitive to the sales partners, and I think that's uh. Again, how it affects you is that that's a that's a big deal. You know?
0: Yeah, and I mean, don't you think that that's you know at some point in time that's going to come back and bite them too? because yeah,
2: of course it is. Yeah, of course it is. Because then they're they're they are inevitably going to chase their tail as attrition happens. They're going to constantly be having to buy the books that were built by the sales teams right. that they could have just gotten when they bought the company in the first place. Right. Instead, they let the salespeople all leave and go to the next company. They're going to have to buy in five years. Right. Instead of just hey, look at that, we had all these salespeople. Let's treat them right. You know what I mean? And bring them on board. And it goes to such a, you know, in terms of the, the allocation of capital, you know, as what you're right. we saying. I mean, it was like, what a waste. W- what a waste. And, it, and yeah. it really is. And I think um, I think it's interesting. And I think as a sales, I think how this affects you if you're an individual sales agent is that, you know, I think you have a uh, insider's report coming up on some of this stuff or an article about buyouts and things mm-hmm. like that. But right. it's like, you know, I think one of the biggest things that salespeople just neglect is that, you know, salespeople too often they make a deal with a person, Right. You know, oh, I'm going to, well, no, no, I, you don't understand. I'm selling for Jack. Jack is going to take care of me. No, mm-hmm. no, no. Mm-mm. Jack is going to take care of his family. And when his ISO gets the size that he wants, he's going to sell to t or Payment Tech right. or First Data or WorldPay or whoever. Right. Right. And no matter how amazing the culture is, no matter how exciting it is, that company, there is at least a good possibility that it is going to get sold. Not going to be around. <clears throat> yeah. Right. And so what does your contract say about that? What happens when that happens? Mm -hmm. Do you have to sell your portfolio? Is there a pre-negotiated multiple that's terrible? Like, What happens when the company you're working with right now sells? What happens if the company who your company is selling for sells? Right. Right. So I think as, you know and again starting out in the industry who cares but as you grow you, and you've got a decent book of business you need to make those connections at your ISO and start to ask them these questions. Right because I mean otherwise you're going to be you know left out. In <coughs> Absolutely. The cold. Yep, yeah. you're going to you're going to be the one the week after the merger going. Wait uh, a second. Where do I go now? I lost my portfolio. What do I do now? Right. I was making 5000 a month and now I don't even have anywhere to sell. Right. So, you know, you definitely got to be aware. You got to have contracts. You have to have things in writing, and you got to make sure you know what's going to happen when, you know, uh, these buyouts and mergers uh, affect you. Yeah, yeah. And I think uh, probably next month, I believe,
0: I have on my on my uh, agenda to do something on contracts. Awesome. All right. Well, that was good stuff, Patty. Really interesting. Thanks. Really interesting. Thanks a lot.
2: This is questions from the field, brought to you by InstantQuoteTool.com. With over 30 training courses covering everything from sales objections to statement analysis, ISOs are using our learning management system to help new agents understand the industry and how to sell merchant services. Industry veterans love our courses because we dive deeper into concepts such as interchange and explore new industry trends like cash discounting, NFC, and the resurgence of American Express with the OptBlue program. Put all of these training courses together with the leading proposal creation tool for merchant services agents in the field, and we believe our branded ISO solution and individual user package is a must-have. Visit InstantQuoteTool.com today, or email support@InstantQuoteTool.com to learn more. So I really enjoyed this little mini series. We've been talking about uh, pricing structures, you know, pros, cons, weaknesses, how right. to sell it, right, right. So la- so we talked about interchange plus pricing, cost plus, mm-hmm. transparent, but maybe confusing. Right. Uh, prone to price increases and uh, other things. So then we talked about tier pricing last week. Right. Uh, the, the lack of transparency, because who knows what qualified, mid-qualified, non-qualified really stand for, mm-hmm. um, but could be used as a way to kind of further simplify things, but you know at the expense of transparency. Right. So now we talk about flat rate pricing. Yeah. Obviously, you Which can't on talk its about face it.
0: would seem like the simplest, right? Oh, right, it's
2: the simplest if it's legit. It's right. the simplest. Um, you know, you can't talk about that without talking about Square, mm-hmm. right? Square is the one that basically introduced. I mean, I'm sure some people were selling it, but they're the ones that kind of standardized this and made this a big deal with their 2.75 percent, right, flat rate. So, um, you know, a couple of pros and cons with flat rate pricing. So, on the pro side, as you mentioned, the simplest, right? Right. So, if you do true flat rate pricing, it's very simple. One thing I would caution you on as a sales agent, you really need to dig in and talk to your processor, your ISO, about this. Because if you want to offer true flat rate pricing, it is actually very rare in our industry on the reseller ISO side. Because most of them will say, well, yeah, you can do flat rate. Now we have that $5 fee, and then we have the $90 Uh PCI compliance. Uh You can't have any of that. Right. They have to, if you're going to do flat rate pricing, you need to do flat rate pricing. And it has to incorporate everything, Everything. So the idea is you can still have those things, but those have to become charges against your residual, not against the merchant.
0: And you can negotiate that. You
2: can negotiate that. You know, I've worked with several companies where I've done flat rate pricing, and I worked with the ISO and said, look, I know you have a $5 monthly fee. I'm totally fine with that. Charge me the $5 on my residual, but I'm not putting it on the customer statement. Mm -hmm. The statement's got to be a true flat rate. So... You know, you can certainly do that. Um, the other issues that you have with uh, with flat rate, and so the good thing, again, is it's simple, which makes it really easy to pitch. Right. And, I mean, Square has, has shown us how much merchants value simplicity. Oh, yeah. It's amazing. I mean, they're literally willing to, to you know, it's, Square isn't offering savings. They're usually offering, yeah. you're going to pay more. Right. Right but it's going to be really simple. Really really simple. You know, yeah. I always tell people I say, you know, yeah, I was thinking about starting a company to make cars that only have one door because <laughs> it's so simple. Well, simple I, isn't always good. Wasn't that the DeLorean? <laughs> yeah, right. Simple isn't always good, you know, but anyway, but that's another another topic. But, you know, flat rate can be good. It's very simple. It can be easy to sell as a result of that and it's easy to pitch to the merchant. Also, ironically, if it's legitimate, it's also the most transparent. Sure. Because you're going to pay what you're going to pay. You know the percentage. So if it really is flat rate and there's no other fees, it's also the most transparent. Mm -hmm. So that's good. It's the most predictable. Merchants like that. One thing merchants don't like is... You know, most of their expenses, they kind of know, like, okay, maybe their electric bill is up and down a little bit. Sure. But the rent is always the same, seventeen hundred a month, and right. then you know what I mean. They kind of know. Here's my expenses. I pay ninety nine dollars a month for this software. I pay this and that. Um. Whereas they do, they really like when an expense can be predictable like that. Mm-hmm. Sure. Flat rate's predictable, so that's that's another good thing. So let's talk about the the negatives. The biggest negative is that as a sales agent, you have to be so careful about pricing because if you price the flat rate too low. It's, it's upside down. You're not making any money. You're losing money. Right, right. And if you price it too low, you may go from having a one month where you make a lot and then month, one month where you lose money mm-hmm. because there's also variations. So the thing you need to understand as a sales agent is that the underlying cost in our industry of interchange, dues, and assessments, the interchange is going to vary based on the card mix. So you may have a merchant where one month, you know your cost, let's say you price somebody at 2% flat rate. Okay. So you went really low. Okay. Well, your merchant may have one month where their cost is 1.5%. You nice. made fifty basis points. Sure. Yeah. The next month, one point nine seven percent. You made three basis points, you know? So you have that issue. And so mm-hmm. that's really the negative. You just gotta really watch out for that. And the other negative, as I kind of already alluded to, is a lot of companies do kind of quote unquote flat rate that isn't really flat rate.
0: But when you're so when you're talking about that in, in terms of, you know, the effective rate being one point five or right. two point seven or whatever it is. Right. So what they're doing in, in, in that scenario then is they're taking all of the transactions and averaging them out?
2: Well, so the idea would be, no. So the idea would be in your residual, you, you always have your revenue and your expenses, right? Right. So the revenue from the customer is always, when you do flat rate, is let's say it's 2.7%. Right. So if they process 10000 in volume, you collected $270 from right. the merchant, right? Right. Well, they may process 10000 one month, and there might be 1.7% or $170 in cost. Okay, I see what you're saying. So yeah. now you take your revenue of 270 minus your cost of 170, and you, you got, got $100. 100 bucks. Right. The next month the cost might be 230, so 2.3 percent, you know, because they use they had a lot more reward cards, They had sure. downgrades or that's whatever. What I, that's kind right. of what I was getting at. Okay, yeah. So, so now your revenue minus expenses, you're still collecting the same 270, right? Because it's flat rate, but now your expenses are higher, making your profit lower. Okay.
0: Yeah, so yeah. you just so got to be, be a real downside on those. Absolutely. Yeah. You yeah. need
2: you need a tool. Obviously, I could plug my instant quote tool here. As we should. Uh, right? Uh, but you know, you could use instantquotetool.com or something else that's going to predict the cost. Right. So that you can kind of at least get a feel to make sure you've left yourself some room So
0: you ha- Yeah, because you have to have some kind of uh, some certainty for planning. Exactly.
2: you got to make sure you got some margin in there for you. Right. So right. there you go. But flat rate can be great. And again, uh, Square has proven it can be a great model. Small merchants seem to really love it. I'll tell you. So. I,
0: I, I, was, uh, I was at a bakery shop not long ago, and they had a little Square. I had the little Square uh-huh. uncle. Yeah. And I said to the woman, you know, this is a bakery shop with all the flour and everything flying right, right, right. around. How often do you have to replace that? She's like, oh, every month or two. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Yeah. She loves it. But she loves it. It's simple. Yeah. It's simple. And that's
0: exactly what she said to me. She's like, I don't have to worry. I know exactly what I'm paying. You know what it
2: is. Yep. Yep. So there you go. There's flat rate pricing. Good stuff, James. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Merchant Sales Podcast. Whether you are an industry veteran, processing executive, or just trying to learn about the payment space, we appreciate your time. The Merchant Sales Podcast is a joint production from greensheet.com and ccsalespro.com. We hope you will tune in next week for more information and tips on building your merchant services business.